You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy hump day, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. That was my best Ric Flair uh, impression, if uh, you couldn't tell. Hopefully, everybody's having a great week, and because it's hump day, um, halfway done with the week, and I'm busy today, I'm launching two podcasts here on Wednesday, and uh, I got, I'm got i pretty busy towards the end of the, this week, so look for two podcasts coming out today. Um, you can listen to one now, you can, and then save one for the rest, you know, later on in the week, or you can do like me when a new show comes out on Netflix and it is watch absolutely every one of them the same day. So you can binge, binge listen if that's a thing for podcasts. But today we have a couple of kick-ass podcasts. This podcast in particular is with a gentleman named Jared Mills. Uh, he is from Iowa and actually he doesn't live too far from where I do. He is going to talk about how he approaches uh, every season and specifically last season where he kind of got into a smaller out-of-the-way property that's been overlooked for several years and uh, ran into a really good piece of property with a lot of good deer. And he is going to uh, walk us through um, what he does for a living, uh, which is kind of cool. He's uh, he's a producer for the. Uh, oh, I can't believe it. I don't want to have to. St- I don't want to have to stop recording. But uh, Midwest Whitetails online um, web show. He produces uh, episodes on there. So. He films his hunts. Uh, it's actually on uh, online, so be sure to go check that out. But uh, really cool, interesting story of how he's chasing a big buck, and an even bigger buck came through, and he ended up uh, harvesting it. But anyway, uh, really, really cool story. Now, before we get into today's podcast, you guys have heard me talk about uh, Gearhead Archery. And uh, they are going to be a new partner of this podcast this year. And it is 
something completely different. Now, let me, I just want to really quickly tell you the story of how I got to know Gearhead. So I ended up, I was at a trade show, right? And my first, my first encounter with Gearhead was I'm walking by, I see these smaller axle to axle bows. And the first thing that popped into my head was, oh, look, a kid's bow. That's pretty cool. And I kept walking. I didn't ask any questions. I just, I made the assumption that those smaller to axle axle bows are for children. Now, I went to the next year, they were at uh, another trade show, and I shot one. And I I didn't get a lot of time to, uh, you know, think about it. And so I shot it, and then I left. Well, one of the very first podcasts that I did, I'd say inside inside the first 20, I got Gearhead on the podcast. And they live in Wisconsin, and they were heading, I think, to Des Moines. So they have to kind of drive by where I live. So Skip, one of the owners, went out of his way, stopped by my house, and we shot in my backyard for a little bit. And that is when I really had the my, my first actual interaction with this bow. And that's when I realized that this bow is more than a, a gimmick. It's actually the innovation, the engineering, the design that goes into this bow is really cool as well. And because of the innovation, design, and engineering, it's able to compete with some of these other, you know, your standard axle-to-axle bows that some of these major brands have. Um, And so I, I started shooting this bow, and I was kind of blown away with it. You know, I don't know if you've ever, if you've shot a bow for so long, you you pick up a newer bow, let's say it's 10 years newer, and you're looking and you pull it back, you shoot it, and it's like you get you you take a step back, you look at the bow and you're like, "Oh my god, this is awesome." Now, just like Fords or Chevys, you know, everybody has their opinion of what they like. Some people like speed bows, some be- people like easy draws, some people like, you know, firm back walls, some people like soft back walls, whatever. This bow, for me, it just felt right. So I had planned on shooting this bow regardless of the, of the um, partnership. You know, they all say that, right? I'd be using this bow, whatever. You guys can think what you want. I don't really care. But I, there's something about this bow that you guys have got to, to try. Um, and don't be, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. That's all I'm going to say. So if you get the opportunity go shoot a gearhead bow. Um, this year they have, uh, you know, some people are put off by the smaller to axle axles, um, which perform just as well. And this year they have a 30 inch axle to axle. And that's what I'm going to be shooting this year. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, it's money. Um, so you first, first, if you get the opportunity, just go and shoot one. Um, the next thing you need to do, or before you even do that, whatever, find a dealer, but go to gearheadarchery.com and make sure you just just look into it. Do me a favor and just look into it. I think some of the, the, the in, um, engineering, innovation, and design 
make this bow superior from a vertical knot travel uh, standpoint, from a durability standpoint, from you know an accuracy standpoint that any serious archer should really look into. And um, I recently sat down with Skip um, from one of the the founders of Gearhead Archery and uh, about and talked a little bit about their company history. And uh, here's what he had to say. Well, the history of Gearhead, we started out with kind of humble beginnings. We were a robotics company. We made uh, robots that have to run three shifts, 365 days a year. So we know how to make very highly precise equipment that performs in an industrial environment. And being that the shop is all hunters, you know, you're always sitting in a tree wondering, what can I come up with where I could leave my day job and actually do this for a living? And, um, when you when you have the background of robots and, and just the structures and stuff that repeat and they last and they last and everything runs, we didn't have any preconceived notions with building a bow. I mean, we start off a blank sheet of paper and nothing's really off the table at that point. You're just you're just designing to say what can I come up with and and there's a lot of failures along the way. You're like some things don't turn out the way you you think they should. And you just go back and you just keep refining what you're learning. And it's, it's, you know, it's not something that we did overnight. It's something that we started in 2008 coming up with designs and, and we got to where we are today. It's not like we're a new, a new company. We're just, we're just bow hunters that, that wanted to create a product that we could actually take to the woods and hunt with that. And we made it. And after we did that, the performance of it was to the point where we're, we're like, let's do this. You know, we can, we can take your head to the next level. We can play with the big boys. We, we have the technology that performs and, um, and you're seeing it in the market today that we actually are, are getting this done. And it's, it's very proud to, to be a part of this. All right, guys, do me a favor, go to gearheadarchery.com and just read up on this bow um, and the all the different bows that these guys are manufacturing. The materials they use are kick-ass. Um, so overall, and it's made in the United States. So overall, it's just a really awesome product. Uh, I really encourage everybody to go check it out. And if you can find a dealer near you to go shoot one, go shoot one. Um, and if you have any questions, call the number on their website and someone will answer it and they will help you out. Pretty simple, pretty awesome. Gearheadarchery.com. Um, now let's get into today's podcast with Jared Mills. All right. On the phone with me now, Mr. Jared Mills. How are we doing today, Jared? I'm good, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Uh, we had a little conversation before we started recording about how uh, both of us are are pretty excited for the uh, for the upcoming turkey season. Is uh, is that something that you do a lot of this time of year, or is it more of something to do just to you know basically get out in the timber before the season actually starts, like the, for deer hunting? I would say. Kind of somewhere between. I wouldn't call myself hardcore when it comes to turkeys. I, I love bow hunting turkeys. I do it every year. Um, but to be honest, I think I get more excitement out of taking people turkey on. I think it's right. such a good sport to, you know, it, it's very rare that you have a boring turkey on. There's at least some kind of interaction. So, you know, this is my kind of time of year to take other people and, you know, they can see how much I, I just love being out there. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I love turkey on myself too. I just, not as hardcore as 
you know, when it comes to white sales. Right, right. Yeah, once you, I, that's kind of the same way I am. Once you do it for a certain number of years and you're successful, like I went on a run there where, man, and I shot a turkey every year for like eight years. And then finally, yeah. that's when I started taking my my wife out and uh, some other people out and getting them into the sport. And that's where I find success. And it's it's fun, too, overall. Right. It's just right. plain old fun. So Absolutely. Um, you, do you do any mushroom hunting as well? I don't. I That's kind of, you know, if I find them, it, that's kind of my way of, uh, all the ground I hunt is by permission. And if I find mushrooms, the, the landowner's a big mushroom guy. So, you know, giving it to him, it's a, it's an easy, small repayment for, you know, letting me hunt and stuff. So I don't usually mushroom hunt for myself. Just, uh, I'm still kind of looking at doing some scouting for deer and then of course turkeys and sheds and that type of stuff. But the mushrooms I usually give to the various landowners. Right, right. Um, how was your, uh, how was shed season this year? Did you find a, a good chunk of them or not? So, yeah, I think if uh, I think if you would ask me a question about a month ago, it would be a whole different answer. I was struggling for a little bit, but um, you know, I've had a little bit more time to get out. We've had a little better conditions, um, and I just the number of deer that held on to their antlers for so long this this year I think made a big difference just finding a lot more and finding a lot of fresh ones even now too so it's the last probably two weeks I'd say have been really good found a number of good antlers some some deer we know and unfortunately a couple dead bucks that we know as well but yeah I hear that it's kind of funny this year how mild everything was my buddy just sent me a text yesterday telling me he has trail camera pictures uh, from April 2nd of uh, maybe two, a two or three year old ho- holding both sides still. So yep. that right there is kind of an indication of, you know, you got there's certain years where they all drop within like a three week period. And then you got years like this where you got them from probably January 1st all the way to, you know, now still holding. Yeah, it's so interesting, man. Because even even this year, on a mild year, we still had a range of deer. Like some some of the older deer I know fairly well that tend to shed early every year still did. Uh, you know, there's a couple of them that still shed right around the same same date that they always do. But there's definitely more, a higher percentage of them this year that held on later. Right, and that kind of that kind of talk goes into the the annual pattern of some of these deer. You know how. Uh, does will, you know, a doe will probably go into heat the same time absolutely every year, depending on when she's born. And then a buck will probably lose his antlers within, uh, you know, a couple, three or four days every year and start growing new ones, all depending on where they're born, you know, based off the information that I've heard. So that annual pattern of what deer you know deer movement and deer behavior that that right there is really interesting to me oh yeah absolutely and that's i think that's the thing i'm most fascinated about and that's the thing i learn most about all the time is just you know not only the patterns but the individual behaviors of the deer too you know just how different uh, one buck can be from another buck in terms of you know what it does year to year and and that type of stuff it's my favorite part about being a hardcore whitetail guy and really learning the deer is just you learn individual deer. You don't just learn how to hunt deer in general, but you learn that certain buck that you're targeting. Right. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. Right. 
Well, just get a little bit of a background. I was in a wedding, um, man, was it September or October this past year? September? It was October. October. Uh, October. That's right, because I had to give so my buddy shit remember. for getting mar- married at, during the uh, during the deer season. But it was it was the uh, it was warm, and yeah. there there probably wasn't anything moving anyway. But that's where that's where I ran into you. You were doing some yeah. uh, video work for those guys, and yeah. um, and come to find out, you work for Midwest Whitetail, right? So I don't work full time for them. I'm just kind of independent contractor. So Bill Winky hired me um, straight out of college. That was my first job out of college. I was working working for him, and I worked for him full time for a few years, um, and then I moved on to some other stuff. But I, I still produce one of uh, his regional shows, the Heartland Show. Uh, so I still work for him part time, but that's not my full time job anymore. Gotcha. So you're you produce the Heartland Show on the the web. On, yep, on Middle oh. Whitetail's online series. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. All and right. So obviously, all my hunts go on on there. They all my hunts go on the main show, but yeah, I, I still film for Middle Whitetail. Okay. So what does that entail? I mean, you're you're a quote unquote producer of this portion of the web show. What are your like day to day routine? You know, or activities? What do you? Uh, what are you? What's your job entail? Yeah, so there's not a whole lot going on this time of year with regards to the show. Uh, on my end, I should say, you know, we have another series called Chasing November that uh, Greg Clements and the guys do an excellent job with production, and they're in the middle of that production season now. But as far as my actual job right now, there's not much going on, just a little adding pro staff teams here and there, but not a whole lot until things start ramping up at the end of the summer, um, start contacting. So I'm responsible just to give you background for Iowa and Illinois. So any pro staff members in Iowa or Illinois, I'm responsible for And then they, you know, they, they film their hunts, they mail me all the footage and I edit it for the show. Cool. Um, Cool. So we, we, we usually ramp up in late summer and, and that's when things really start going. So as someone who is responsible for putting together a show um, on a weekly basis, once, you know, everything starts rocking and rolling, how frustrating, I mean, do you ever, is it a frustrating job when someone, you know, maybe shoots a buck, you're supposed to put out this professional looking uh, product, but the footage is not at the quality that it needs to be. I mean, have you ever had to tell a guy who shot a giant buck, I'm sorry, we can't use your footage because it's dog crap. Uh, I didn't say it that way, but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been times we have a a large pro staff and, you know, sometimes things happen. You guys getting into filming for different reasons. Some people, you know, do it because they have a passion for the the video. Some people, you know, want to see their hunt professionally produced or, you know, there's a, there's a wide variety of reasons. And, you know, we try to stress when we, when we bring on pro staff teams, that okay, you're doing this. And, and by, by coming on, you're making a commitment to be a videographer first, a, a hunter second, but you know, that's a, yeah. that's a tough task to somebody, especially, you know, maybe someone hasn't killed a giant deer and it's their first encounter with a giant deer. And then they're going to put the camera on the, on the back burner, you know, at, at lower right. priority. Um, so it happens. There's no doubt it happens, but you know, people just have to understand. And for the most part, our pro staff is pretty good. It's, it's fun working with a lot of guys. So it's, 
I don't get frustrated too often. It's a, you know, it's just a fun group to interact with and, and all that type of stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, we just have to stress that, you know, you're making a commitment to the video. It's what we do. It's, that's the product we put out. Uh, right. we, we become hunter second. So. so does a pro, do a lot of the guys that send you footage, are they teams? Like uh, you got two guys, one guy hunts one day, another guy hunts another day, or do you got a lot of self-filming that happens as well? So for the most part, uh, we somewhat discourage self-filming just because we know how hard it is to pull off, uh, you know, to to actually make it look good. You can, you know, pull it off by being real wide and having the deer look real small in the frame. But to pull off a really quality self-film time is very, very challenging. Um, so for that reason, we you know, discourage it. So most of our pro staff, well, no, we don't, we don't bring on any actual individuals. That being said, there are times where, you know, their, their partner can't make it out or, you know, something comes up and they go up and film on their own. But, right. uh, we also set that expectation at the beginning that, you know, if you're going to self film, it's, there's no guarantee we're going to use it. it. You know, just cause you get it on film doesn't mean that it's quality enough to make the show. So that's another right. thing that, that we stress too, just because it's, you know, people like to see a quality finished product and that's what we take pride in, in, in putting out to the viewers. So. For sure. How hard is it to edit? I mean, uh, I take it there's software out there that, that a guy has to use, but you know, just for a little industry inside information, um, these guys send you their, their footage and then you're basically boiling down hours and hours of footage into a 20 minute segment, right? Absolutely. And yeah, 20 minutes at the most. The, the, the tough thing about what we do um, at Midwest Whitetail is we our our show, we call it semi live, but it's, we produce an episode every single week. So every Friday morning, my show comes out. That means I have, you know, typically a turnaround of two to three days by the time the, the pro staff guy mails me the footage and I get it. I don't have much time to turn it around. So we kind of have a system set up where and we, and I communicate with the pro staff a lot, but if I usually know what's going on when they're hunting and the, the type of action that they're having and when they kill something, they usually do a pretty decent job of organizing the footage to try to save me a little bit of time. But um, just going back to what you're saying, that's exactly it. It's a, it's a huge challenge to try to produce all that in a, such a short time frame. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's, that's not my full-time job. I still have a full-time job. I work in pharmaceutical sales as a full-time job. So oh, that's right. the hours are limited, but uh, right now, you know, I don't have kids or anything yet, so I can afford to work late at night and, and get it done. Gotcha. So, what happens if you got a you got a show to put out and you know yeah you have a lot of guys but do you ever run into an instance where you had an absolute dead week and nobody kills or maybe you have a guy who who kills one buck and it's like the first day he hunts there's not a lot of backstory um how do you make a show out of that just so, um, t- I guess I'll break that down in two parts. The first part, you know, when we absolutely don't have any content whatsoever as far as hunting content, um, we try to have some stuff uh, lined up as backup plans, like sponsor segments or, you know, just some type of edu- educational segment, really, 
uh, to put on there, especially those those that time frame. You know, Iowa season doesn't open till October first, and you're we, we're starting late August, so there's a big gap there where nobody's hunting. So we have to be able, but but that's also the you know, the time as as you probably know with you know you, your podcast and website and sponsors and stuff. You know that's their selling season. That's the, the peak of their selling season. So we have to be producing content for sponsors at that time. Yeah. Um, but no, it, you know, a lot of viewers tell us what they like about our show is it's you know educational and so we try to include a lot of those segments, just kind of showing behind the scenes what we do and and, and get creative with stuff. Right. Okay. And then, uh, you know, the second part of your question about, um, you know, a buck with not a lot of backstory and it, it is what it is. You're not always gonna like the deer I killed this year. I didn't have any history with it. Now, this, I kind of tell people, I, I love the story part of, of hunting. I think that's the part that will never get old is the stories of individual deer or, or hunters. Your story doesn't always have to be, you know, a lot of history with a buck. It, you know, it could be, and my story this year is hunting public land or, you know, something like that. Yeah. And you just tell that whole story and, and maybe it's a new farm. You don't have history with any, any deer and you're trying to learn a new farm, but that becomes your story. Right. Um, so we just, we stress it doesn't always have to be history with the deer. You know, that's interesting. It's great. Um, but just the reality of it, you're not always going to have a lot of history. Right. Okay. So, you you do this part time. You're a pharmaceutical sales rapper for your your full time job. Yep. So let's talk. What I want to talk to today a little bit is how you kind of set up for for your season, and that is all the way from right now uh, until I, I take it you get into the food plot game just a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So all right. So, Right, and that that time of the year starts here pretty soon, and you know, going all the way into the hunting season. So, as of right now, starting right now today, what are you doing um, to prepare for the whitetail season? So, typically, this time of year, I'm of course shed hunting, but I always wondered this: how many sheds I walk by because I tend to be looking up and not down, looking at new tree stand spots and stuff like yeah, that. Amen. But, you know, I, I, I just love walking this time of year. You can, uh, you know, without all the, the foliage and, and leaves and everything, you can just learn a lot about that fall time frame. Um, so I spend a lot of time walking and I always, on most years, it's a little bit different this year that I don't necessarily have any targets going into next year, but a lot of times, you know, I have four and a half year old type deer that I passed up the previous year and learned a lot about you know, the core areas and that type of stuff. So I'm kind of going in and investigating some of those spots, trying to figure out, you know, where I can hunt them, where I could potentially put food uh, near their core area. And I really just start narrowing it down to the individual deer and, and their behaviors, you know, about what I learned the previous year. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of deer um, killed in the neighborhood and on the farm that I hunt. So it's kind of mind blowing how many deer were killed actually. Yeah. But so I don't really have necessarily targets on the main farm that I hunt, um, but I hunt a couple other farms. So it's a little bit different. I, I haven't been probably doing as much as I typically do this time of year. Um, but yeah, a lot you know, a lot of frost seeding, clover, um with regards to food plant food plots, the the landowner 
he uh, he does some seeding, uh, custom seeding as a primary part of his job. So he has a lot of the equipment to do like the the corn, soybeans. So I don't actually don't get involved in that too much on the main farms I hunt. I usually am responsible for the rest of the you know, Nebraska plots later in the summer. There's certain, certain smaller areas gotcha. uh, where he can't get his big equipment and that type of stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, so you, just you hunt on mo- mostly private ground, right? Yeah, so all the ground I hunt is uh, land that I've got permission to hunt on. Um, I don't lease any ground. I don't own any ground. Gotcha. So, do, I mean, is this through family, friends, or did you have to do do like some research and, and do some door knocking? Um, most of it has been through a, a mutual friend. Um, I started hunting there uh, 2013, I believe. This the main farm that I hunt. Um, I've been there since 2013, just uh, kind of started doing some work for the landowner. I think, you know, these days, I'm sure you'd probably agree, but, you know, gaining access is a, a challenge. And I think you, the biggest thing is you have to provide some type of value to that landowner. You know, they right. just don't get granted permission to hunt anymore for no reason. Um, so, I, you know, I, he, I help him with some of his businesses and just really try to do as much work as I can when I have time just to, to make it a, you know, a mutually benefiting relationship. I think that's the, the only way it would work. Right. Um, so I've been fortunate that it, it's worked out and he, he sees the value I bring and I obviously get to hunt land. So, uh, so does he hunt as well? Out. He does not. Um, oh. he, he, he brings in, so he does a little bit of outfitting. He brings in not large scale or anything, but he brings in some hunters and, mostly friends from out of state. Right. Um, so I kind of help, I wouldn't say guide, but you know, I help run cameras on, on all the various farms and kind of set up stands and, and tell the hunters where to go and, and that type of stuff. But he, he so he sees the, the value in, in management for deer. He just gotcha. doesn't actually hunt himself. So he does a little bit of outfitting, it sounds like. Does... Um... Is there a conversation that you guys have at the beginning of every season saying, all right, uh, even and even to the guys, the other guys that he comes let on his property, that he lets on his property, of uh, is there a, a specific hit list of the deer that are on your farm? Uh, is it based off age, antler size, uh, or is it just kind of, hey, shoot what you want? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that's, that's very, very tough, and it's, um, you know, it can get, it can be frustrating sometimes on on my end and his end. He wants he wants deer to get to full maturity. Obviously, I do as well. But um, it's hard for a guy that comes in from a state that maybe doesn't have um, as big a deer as say Southern Iowa does, right. and they come in and they see a, a giant three year old that's the biggest deer they've ever seen in their life, and you you can't ask a guy to pass that just because. Um, you know, he he paid for his hunt. He can technically shoot what he wants. So there's only so much you can do um, on that end. It's, it's it's hard to not just let a guy do that because it's, right. it's really cool to see when they shoot their biggest deer, even if it's a younger deer that had great potential. I mean, you still got to be happy for the guy because, you know, it's very cool to see someone with that, that type of experience. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, we, we send it, like I said, it's usually, it's mostly a core group of 
buddies of the landowner that we don't get too many just kind of random guys coming to hunt but we uh, we send trail cam pictures all year round basically during the farm so they have a decent idea of what we're calling good deer and you know deer with potential and, and that type of stuff right. um of and you live in iowa different. right yeah i'm, okay, I'm just right. south of iowa city Gotcha. Okay. So you hunt in Iowa, um, on this, you know, when, when people say, think Iowa, they think giant bucks, you know, behind every tree. What's a, what's a, a typical age class on the farm that you hunt? Um, for me, uh, I don't, I think I'm probably a little pickier than a lot of people, but I try not to shoot a deer until it reaches five and a half. And there's usually a, decent you know between the various farms there's usually a, a decent number of five and a half year olds what's a decent number pursue so i'd say on the main farm that i hunt like i said I've, i hunt multiple ones but the main farm that i've hunted the past three years i would say on average there's probably four to five five and a half year olds four to five um, and how many acres is that it is just it's just over three fifty. Three hundred and fifty acres, and you got f- you have four or five five and a half year olds or older running around on that piece. And I and I'm saying that as kind of a uh, you know, granted that changes a lot throughout the the season. You have deer coming yeah. and going and stuff. But I'm just kind of a, an average number. I'd say there's there's typically about that many of you can at least have a decent shot of pursuing, not killing, but. Right. you know, chasing that for a fall. Gotcha. So uh, with, with that age structure there, you know, f- to me, if I had four or five, five-year-olds, you know, m- calling that piece of property home throughout the year. And let's say there's two or three that that was their core area, really consistent. Um, I would be in the same boat as you and, and feel comfortable passing some of these deer. Um, is that, the, is that, like when I mean passing some, I mean passing some three or four year olds. Do you do you see that being consistent every year, or are there years where uh, when there's all the five year olds are gone? Whether it was you know they were shot previous years, they died from disease, uh, and now I got to if I want to kill something, I got to go down to a, a four year old or even a three year old. Yeah, it's it's been consistent up until, like, I'm really anxious to see what this fall is going to be like. Because, like I was saying earlier, it's crazy how many deer were killed on that farm. Because uh, a lot of the hunters that came in happened to hunt that farm instead of some of the other ones this year. And the neighborhood killed a lot of deer. Gotcha. And we found some dead. So all that adds, adds up to what, what will be kind of a surprise this fall. I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know that I know of one that will be over five i know one that i think that will be five um but and, and granted people again just to clarify you, you kind of think you know all these five and a half year olds there's giants running around everywhere you know these are i'm, I'm calling them strictly line age you know they could be right. 100 and under 130 but you know I'm, right. I'm still counting them in that five plus group so is that how you make? Is that how you and the the landowner have decided to make your decisions? Is to focus more on uh, age class? I mean, as an outfitter, it's you know, and kind of like you mentioned uh, about, hey, a guy paid money, he's going to come in here and he's going to shoot, 
whatever the hell he wants. Do do you ever communicate, or not you, but the landowner, communicate with the guys he has come on and say, hey, man, I'd really appreciate it if you would pass three-year-olds and, and just try to focus on four-year-olds. Does that conversation happen, or is it just one of those, you know, we're not even going to mention it because it, you know, when it's all said and done, it doesn't even matter? No, we definitely have the conversation, and and, and, and we kind of point out, because in all reality, it's going to benefit them. A lot of these customers are, and I could call them customers, they're more like friends, but they're, they're repeat yeah. guys. That you know they come they come in every three years and they draw their tag or whatever it is, um, and so we kind of say, look, if if everyone gets on the same page here, everyone's going to have more a higher age class deer to hunt in the future. Right. Um, so that conversation definitely happens, and for the most part, you know, I don't want to sound like they all come in and shoot anything um, that looks big to them, but uh, for the most part, they're pretty knowledgeable guys. They've they've hunted long enough, and they can you know relatively get close on on age it's just it's, it's tough when you're coming from different parts of the country different body sizes different characteristics right. you know it gets tough to it's just to us it's second nature we spend so much time you know, following these deer and, and looking at them and seeing them in person that it's it's second nature to have a pretty good guess on their age um but i said not everyone has that uh experience yeah. to go back on so on an average year your best guess, how many deer do you actually chase? And, and let's use this year for uh, this past year as an example. How many deer uh, made your hit list this in 2016? So this year, this past fall, I actually hunted a new farm. And I, I barely, the farm that I've been talking about the whole time, I barely hunted um, just because I knew some of the guys that drew for that zone were going to be focusing on that. And, you know, kind of wanted to give them a fair shot at, at some of the deer there and I got permission on a new farm that I had uh, access to and uh, it took a while but eventually there's a lot of good deer showed up on that farm so I started spending a lot of time on the new farm uh, chasing there's probably know, four deer I would have shot on that one farm and this was the this was a smaller farm than the one I normally hunt so it happened to be an outstanding year for that neighborhood there's and I don't know how many deer. There's a lot of really good deer. And I killed, inches-wise, I killed my biggest biggest deer yet on this new farm. And it was a, a deer that you'd never seen before, right? I had not seen him before. I was uh, I was hunting another deer of the same caliber, size-wise, as him. Um, but this particular one I shot was one I didn't know. And... Um, you know, with it being a new farm, and I had really only run cameras hard for probably four weeks leading up to that point. Um, gotcha. So it's not a crazy surprise that I didn't have any history with him. But right. Um, so yeah. on this new on this new farm uh, that you got access to, um, tell us a little bit about your your thought process. You got a brand new farm. What's the very yep. first thing that you did when you got access to go hunt it? What time of year was it when you got the access? It was late summer. I mean, real late, like just barely enough time to, to put in some brassicas. Uh, I went there with the landowner, and uh, he kind of showed me around a little bit, and we put in a bunch of turnip plots. And, uh, you know, I just kind of started big picture. Ran a couple cameras, but at the same time, I still run cameras on all these other farms, so I only had a few cameras to actually run. So I didn't 
I probably didn't do it justice in that regard. I'm sure I missed some deer, um, but it just didn't seem like there there weren't any ag fields real close by, soybean fields. So I'm thinking a lot of the deer just were a little bit further away until you know October rolled around. Then they really started showing up on camera and scrapes started opening up and, and all that. But when I actually started hunting, it's a completely different terrain farm than what I typically hunt. Uh, the one I typically hunt is like a pine tree farm, planted rows of planted pine trees. Um, so tons and tons of cover, very low visibility. You can't see very far. Uh, this new farm that I got access to is uh, 80, 90% CRP. So, you know, a lot of visibility, not much, uh, not much timber. Um, so it allowed me to start big picture and just get good vantage spots, you know, places I could see a long ways and just, I simply wanted to learn how the deer use the farm, um, you know, how they how they move from one area of cover to another or, or go to food and where they end up at, at night, how they come back in the morning. Um, so that's that's really how I started learning. And I just started narrowing down where I kept seeing deer move to or, or you know, come from and just start focusing in on those spots. And I killed November 21st, so it's starting to get you know, later in the month, um, right. by the time I was starting to, you know, narrow things down. And, um, at that point I was just ready to be really aggressive, um, and just, uh, go where I believe the best spot in the farm was. Gotcha. And, uh, it, you know, fortunately it paid off. So you kind of described what I would call a observation stand into like you set up in a really good visibility area and then made your uh, moves via like a run and gun into what I would call like a kill stand. Is that how you kind of approached that new farm was trying to be, trying to find a location where you could see a lot of movement from one location and then jumping in to a location based off what you're seeing and based off trail cameras. Absolutely. That's it. I mean, literally every single hunt was a hanging hunt, you know, and, and that's, you know, you're hanging two stands when you have a cameraman. So, it was always packing in stands and, and taking them out just because we, we weren't ready to set up any permanent stands without actually knowing how good the spots were. So there was so much learning involved and, and I had a blast learning it. It was just a, a different type of train than I'd hunted than what I've hunted previously. So it was a lot of fun trying to, it was a challenge, no doubt. And it paid off of course, but it was, um, it was a lot of fun learning it. With it being uh, one of those properties, and by the way, I think some of those properties, you know, the the ninety percent CRP properties, man, I for, there's something about those kind of properties that I I absolutely love. It's like the deer just materialize yeah. out out of nowhere, but yeah. that also limits tree stand placement um, in certain areas. Did you did you ever get busted uh, on that farm because of you know, you needed to move in, you needed to be aggressive, but at the same time, there was limited options for a tree stand? Um, I wouldn't say I got busted, and of course it's all relative. I got right. busted a lot more on the this pine tree farm that I typically hunt just because, you know, there's so much cover, and you just, and the wind just acts so funky in those pine tree groves um, that you get busted a lot, but um, the CRP farm, I don't, I wouldn't say I necessarily got busted a lot for that reason. Um, there was enough edge and enough 
tree stand options. It was just kind of learning which ones were actually productive and you know, which ones were strictly observation stands and and that type of stuff. And you know, it, it just it's a challenge to learn it, and it's a challenge because a lot of times the deer bed in the middle of CRP. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's you can at least see and 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 learn and narrow it down. Like the other farm, I can't tell you how many times over the years that I'd have a, a you know you could hear a mature buck grunting and chasing 15 yards away, and you don't have a clue what it is because it's so thick and you just can't see yeah. through the pine tree. Right. Um, so it's really hard to to learn and pattern a deer in that scenario versus seeing him out in the CRP, even if you know he's 300 yards away you see where he went so you can make that adjustment the next day. Right. Okay. So when did you realize that this new farm was worth hunting? I mean, was it before the season even started, you got a couple trail cam pictures of uh, some shooters or did you, did you see a couple deer from one of your observation stands that let you know, Hey, uh, I'm going to focus here this year. Um, to be honest, it was when I first got on the farm, it kind of had that wow factor to it. Um, that, you know, before we even put cameras on it, I knew it it was in a good area and, uh, it was river bottom ground. And I just, I just knew that, and I don't think it received a whole lot of pressure in years past. And I just knew it, it could be pretty productive. Um, I did think, you know, my buddy Mike and I, who I do, primarily all my hunting with um we kind of talked about it being a what we call a rut farm we, we thought it would set up really good on the rut just from looking at aerial maps just because of how it connected you know bigger chunks of timber it was along the river bottom just could see a lot of deer moving through it at that time of year as opposed to earlier which is exactly what the trail cam showed i didn't have had one mature buck i think all the way up until late October and then they just started showing up a lot um, gotcha. but and that one mature buck wasn't necessarily a shooter either he wasn't okay. uh, very big but you know it took a while but eventually it, it became really good gotcha so then um you said it kind of had a wow factor what about this farm gave it that wow factor just good terrain um it, you know good topography to it a lot of edge to it a lot of diversity to the cover you know you have the crp ground so on the crp ground up high kind of got that the river bottom marshy ground down low um pretty good elevation on a couple of the ridges that were timber ridges um just a lot of diverse habitat and like i said i was coming from what i typically hunt i was just so excited to be able to see you know it was just that visibility thing unless you experience hunting without visibility you take it for granted a little bit but um you know, it was just, it was just, I was excited to try something new for sure. And it just, it was exciting from, you know, many aspects of stepping on it that first day, but those are the primary things. It just was a different type of hunting than what I had done in the past. Right. Um, there, there's some times where I'll go onto a new farm or I'll walk into an area of, you know, some like while I'm scouting and I'll get like a gut feeling where I'm just like, Oh boy. There's a, yeah. there is a, a big mature buck that calls this place home. Did you, did you kind of have a feeling like that as well? Yeah, I just, again, it wasn't like necessarily seeing sign and thinking that, but it was just, it was like, there's, there's no way that this isn't going to have some good hunting at some point. 
you know, right. during November. You know, the, was there just, a lot of sign? Not when I first got on it, um, and again, all relative. Just it, it, everything was so much more spread out in that this form. Right. You know, I didn't dig in because really it was it was getting to be that August to September time frame. You know, potentially gear shift in areas. I I didn't want to. Go chancing all over the form to, to look in some of the areas to find the best sign um, at, at that time of year anyways. Um, but yeah, I, I think I had that gut feeling that this is going to be a good hunting farm uh, some point this fall. Okay. So with all that said, then did you have, um, you got access late summer. Did you instantly go on the farm, do your scouting and hang your stands or did you say, okay, well, it's 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 a little too late for me to be on here. You, you, I'm just going to hang my cameras, and then I'm just going to run and gun uh, on the first sets. Yep, that's exactly what we did. did we didn't go in and, hunt, and hang any stands. Um, put some cameras on scrapes and trails. Like we maybe had five cameras total on the farm at that point. And uh, just kind of wanted to let the cameras tell me what was going on for a while, at least. And spent a lot of the first couple weeks of October um, hunting a little bit closer to home, targeting does, that type of stuff. And um, once kind of probably mid-October rolled around, I was starting to adjust cameras. Took a couple more cameras down there. Um, and just that's when I really started putting the pieces together. But I don't think I even did my first hunt on the farm until close to October 20th. Gotcha. Um, October 15th, October 20th, somewhere around there. Um, and what, again, I just started your, with those observations. Huh. Gotcha. What did your first, uh, card pull tell you about that farm? Um, I'm trying to think when that was. Like I said, there was only, I think I had one mature buck. I mean, he looked well past mature, and he was on there from the very beginning. Um, but he, he, you know, he was, he, you could tell the way he worked scrapes and stuff, and he was pretty aggressive. And um, you know, I was a little bit concerned about how dominant he was in that area, but there's a lot of different areas of that farm that there's room for, for multiple deer to be on there. But that's, I got excited just seeing the number of deer uh, using the property right away. Uh, even though there weren't any bucks, like I said, till probably late October um, on camera, there's just enough deer on the farm that uh, I was still excited about what, what was going to show up. Right. When did you get your first, uh, was it was it trail camera or was it tree stand intel that showed you the very first like buck where you were like, uh-oh? We got to, you know, because you, you were chasing a booner, right? Yeah, so it um it almost happened simultaneously. So my buddy Mike had killed on his farm November 6th. And then uh, we went to this CRP farm November 7th and had a really good hunt and saw a 170-plus type deer out in the CRP. And, um, but it was going in that that afternoon I pulled a bunch of cards on that farm and there were just, uh, I mean, a lot of good deer. There's five or six new big deer at that time. And of course we saw one that night. Um, so that's really when it started. It was almost like a card pull in the hunt on, on the same day that it was like, okay, this is where I need to be spending my time from here on. Um, 
Oh yeah, I think that that first week of November time frame is is when we figured that out. Okay, and based off that uh, trail camera information, did that then did that tell you where you wanted to hunt, or were you still thinking, hey, I'm going to set up some observation stands and get a good view before I I jump in? What was the determining factor? Was it the observation stands that you know the deer you saw from the observation stands, or was it the trail camera intel? There's a little bit of both. Um, I will say, right when I got with those pictures there was some mixed information that i still wanted to learn from observation sits for example you know i'd have one deer on camera at one time and then he'd be on a different camera a little ways away you know close to that time frame and i'd want to try i wanted to try to figure out how he got from point a to point b because i couldn't really hunt where i was getting pictures of him um, so i needed to kind of learn more about it but just knowing that those deer were on the farm using the farm uh, gave me a lot of confidence. I just, I just need to learn where the best spot to be. And, you know, fortunately you don't always get into that lucky of a situation, but, uh, there were multiple deer that I would shoot. You know, I wasn't trying to learn one deer at that point. I was just trying to learn the farm, the general movement and, uh, you know, put myself in the best spot for one of those bucks to walk by. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you 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 set your observation stand up. You notice, or I take it you you found the area that you wanted to focus on, right? Yeah. Tell me that first. Talk to me a little bit about that first jump into what you considered uh, a good. You know, you you made your aggressive move. Tell me a little bit about that, and what was the information that led to that? Yeah, so one of the cameras uh, on the forum seemed to produce the most pictures. It was it was probably the spot I would have guessed would have produced the least, um, just because of where it was located. It was a tiny little patch of woods, um, but for some reason that's where we consistently got the most buck pictures. It was just on a little scrape off of a off of the trail. Uh, you know, nothing special about the that camera spot. But because it was located near that little woodlot, I, I knew that that was, um, you know, a definite area of interest on that farm. And I can't remember the date of my first hunt in that little woodlot. Um, it was a morning hunt. We went in, in the dark. Mike and I we hung two stands and, you know, rattled right away and had three bucks come into a rattling sequence, you know, one being uh, five plus. Um, and it, it wasn't a deer I wanted to shoot at that point, but, um, it was, I want to say it was just after my first encounter with the big one out in the CRP that I was referring to earlier. Um, but that's, that was when I was like, okay, this, I got to figure out how to hunt this little woodlot because this is where all the action seems to be. And it was my third hunt in that woodlot when I killed. So I had uh, two hunts before it and both were very productive, successful hunts in terms of seeing deer. Um, but I just kept narrowing down the, st- the spot and eventually found it on my third hunt in there. Gotcha. So then were the trail camera with all the, the buck pictures on it that led you to this little, um, you know, st- timber, this little stand of timber. What were the photos you were receiving daylight or were they nocturnal? Yeah, daylight most. So there was a couple nocturnal, but that was the spot that, uh, you know, produced not only the most buck pictures, but the most daylight buck pictures. Gotcha. And it just, it, it, just the way it set up, it, it 
had to be some type of connecting piece when they, they'd come across one woodlot, across the CRP, into this one small woodlot, and just, I mean, like clockwork. And the camera, it was probably, it was a good 100 yards away from where I actually spent the time hunting, okay. um, that little spot. But, yeah, the camera told me a lot for sure. So what made this woodlot special then? You know, I think it was, it's kind of a a ditch that connects to a larger piece of timber. And when they're cutting across that CRP, that was, that was kind of the, was in the center of the farm. And a lot of the trails led to this point, led to this little woodlot that would, uh, you know, connect to the bigger pieces. So I really just think it was a, it didn't seem like there was a lot of deer that necessarily bedded in there. Uh, you know, my buck was cruising first thing in the morning, November 21st, he was by himself and he was just on a mission. Just He would have just been walking right by us. There wasn't any calling or anything. He was just on his way to wherever he goes to bed. And I just really think it was just a, a safe little travel corridor for him. It was pretty thick, a lot of down logs and stuff, um, and just made it kind of a, a, a safe place down out of the way from, from everything else. So when you went in there that first morning um, in the dark, did you have to, you know, that, that for me is a real stressful moment. Like I don't get stressed, stressed out very much, but going into a, an awesome location in the dark and I typically don't, I mean, I do, but I typically don't do a lot of morning running guns. Like I'll set up yeah. in there the evening before and then go back the next morning. Right. I'll, well, I'll go in, I'll hunt that night and then I'll go in and hunt that same morning to try to catch, you know, the, the morning, right. the evening, and then the morning uh, movement. But you went in pitch black. Did you have to cut any shooting lanes before you ended up, you know, getting fully set up? Uh, yeah. We, you had to wait for it to, we, we got in there early. Uh, you had to wait for it to start breaking light. And actually my very first time in there, when I said I was rattling, when we rattled those, those bucks in, we had very few shooting lanes and, you know, two of the three bucks that came in, I couldn't have shot if I wanted to. Um, so that we kind of made the adjustment. So where I killed from that stand was 20 yards down the hill and, uh, and a bigger opening. So it was part of it was based on prior experience learning from that hunt. Um, part of it was being closer to where they seem to travel because I, I kind of learned where they seem to travel on that previous hunt too. So that's why that's another reason I moved down the hill. But um, I guess what what makes you nervous about going? Is it just spooking deer in the dark or what? What's the well? It's not from? like that's like doing a run and gun setup in the yeah. in the dark. Not necessarily going in on a morning hunt because I love hunting mornings, but. Yeah. doing a, a, a run and gun setup in the dark in a place that you've never hunted before. You know, for right. me, if I was going to a, do a run and gun on a location that I have experience with, yes, that's awesome. But it sounds to me like you, you weren't even in there before. So you found a tree in, right. you basically guessed, right? Yeah, it was. I would call it an educated guess. But yeah, I mean, just because <laughs> right. from from hunting. Well, you know, the, the third hunt was an educated guess. I guess the, right. the first one was absolute guess. Yeah. Um, the, but it's a starting point. Educated, but but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It, it's it, it is different when you're hunting a brand new farm. You know, you're it's 
in November, your time's running now. You don't really know, you know how long you're going to have access to the flying. You don't know if it's going to be right. multi, multiple years or, you know, what it is. Um, and so that, that, that's the point at where, you know, I'm not as afraid to get aggressive. And um, you, you got to learn somehow, you know, if you want right. to put yourself in the best spot, you got to at least find that best spot. And right. that's just kind of the approach I took to it. So that morning you went in blind, um, you rattled in those three bucks. Did you, mm-hmm. was that an all day sit for you guys? Or did you get down and make a move for the evening hunt that same day? Yeah, we got down and, and made a move, uh, because of this little wood dot, it's, it's thick and you can't see very far. And I wanted to, for the evening, I wanted to be somewhere where I could see a little more right. and just, uh, you know, keep learning and keep putting pieces together. Um, but yeah, so we got down I mean, we didn't sit all that late that morning. I think we probably sat till 10 and we got down and, and kind of snuck around a little bit, kind of looked at, you know, what the ditch did around the corner and, you know, where they like to cross that ditch. And so we, you know, we walked around maybe in a, a 25, 30 yard circle and then get snuck out of there. Um, so it was, we still wanted to learn a little more information about that spot because we had a good hunt, but we need to adjust. So we need to figure out how to adjust from that point. So we, we took a little peek around and then snuck out of there. And, um, I want to say that was November 8th. And then my third hunt in there was November 21st when I killed. Okay. So you let that, so did you leave a tree stand up in there? I did not. We took that down. Uh, okay. we just knew that it, they're just, the tree wasn't in the best spot and it wasn't the best tree to hunt out of due to no shooting lanes. Okay. So my question is you're, you're getting all these trail camera pictures of these big mature deer on camera. You know, there's a big deer in there. Yeah. Why did you wait? You know, you left on November 8th. Why did you wait until November 21st to go back in there? Were you chasing another deer on a different farm? Um, well, that's a good question because, yeah, it, it is a good time period. But, um, like, I had work in between that. Um, and the other thing that people kind of don't realize, when you're hunting with a partner, you're automatically cutting your individual hunting time in half because, you you know, you switch off filming. So there were certain days in between that I was filming, certain days I was working. It just It just didn't work out for me to get back in there. It wasn't by choice. Or okay. I wanted to let it sit. It wasn't anything like that. It just, and then, you know, of course, waiting for the right wind too. You know, you got to right. take that in consideration. So the next opportunity I had with the wind I thought I needed, uh, you know, I, I went in there. But um, it wasn't like I was letting it rest or anything. Right, right. So, you know, but the property did rest, right? You, you went in. Right. All right, you went in. You, you got a, you know, you you got an idea a, an idea of this property then you had you you took like a 10 or 15 day hiatus from it right and then you came back uh, like and was there more sign in there were you feeling better even on the 21st or were you just like man i hope i didn't miss it no i was still pretty confident in that spot um, so I said my first time in there was, uh, you know, the hunt I rattled the bucks in. My third time in there was the day I killed. So there was one hunt in between there that I was hunting the other side of the little wood lot, um, just because there was a little more visibility. There were more trees to choose from, that type of stuff. And it all kind of pinched down uh, there. I saw a ton of deer on that second hunt in that wood lot. 
I didn't see any shooters, um, but I right. saw a ton of deer, and they all moved the exact same way uh, that morning. They all went from you know one area of it to the other, and that kind of uh, furthered my knowledge of how they moved through that woodlot, and I took that into consideration for my, my third hunt in that spot. Gotcha. So on that third hunt then, um, between that second hunt and that third hunt, did you check your trail cameras at all? I know you had to work and you were filming for another guy, but... Um, did you have time in there to go check cameras at all? I did. Um, I was checking cameras pretty regularly. I would say every, man, every time I could, it, you know, it, this farm is, uh, over an hour away from where I live. So there was, I didn't get down there as often as I'd like, but I would say every five days I was probably pulling cards if I could. Um, but I also didn't have a camera set up that, was the best for the movement I was learning in that woodlot. You know, where my camera was was kind of a, a, a random scrape What is what I kind of learned. It wasn't the main travel pattern, um, and I didn't take the time to adjust that camera to move to it, no. I did pull the card, and, you know, deer were still using that scrape. Um, but, you know, I don't think I learned anything else on camera uh, to make me more confident in that spot. It was just from those those two sits before I killed is what, you know, kept me confident in that spot. Okay. So was it a morning or an evening hunt on the 21st? Morning, but almost the same thing as my first hunt in there went in the same way, you know, hung two scenes in the dark, all that type of stuff. All right. Did when, again, did you have an idea of the tree at least that you were going to set in? I had an idea. I didn't know if it was going to work. It was a, a pretty small oak tree. And, uh, you know, when you're considering two guys, um, you always got to take that in consideration. But um, I had an idea of where this tree was at. Um, I just wasn't sure exactly how it would work out. But, you know, took flashlights in there and, and made it happen. And the other thing, I kind of told my cameraman this when we were walking in, I said, it was a, it was like a four mile an hour east wind that morning, yeah. and I needed something easterly. But you know, I I just don't like east winds in general, especially when they're under five miles an hour. You know, you're not gonna get anything true at that point. Um, but I told him walking in, I said, you know, I fully expect that we're gonna get busted at some point this morning. Um, we're gonna, <laughs> it's, it's gonna take, it's gonna take some luck. There's no doubt about it. And you know, our sport involves a lot of luck, anyways. But Right. Um, now I, I, I looked at it as, okay, November 21st, I gotta be aggressive. It's time to be aggressive. I need to just put myself in the best spot and hopefully the wind happens to work out when the shooter does come by, you know, it, it was no doubt an aggressive move, but I, um, you know, I, I had, had faith that that's where I needed to be. So that's right. kind of why I made the move. Okay. So you get, you go in there, you get set up. You know, you're like, you have, what, what was your feeling? I mean, were you, you mentioned you were ex, you're expecting to get busted, but uh, did you have a good gut feeling at all about the, that set? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, first of all, I knew there were a lot of good deer on the farm. So that, right. that obviously makes you feel good. But second of all, I was two for two on good hunts in that tiny little woodlot. Um, and it was, and even though the, the wind wasn't the greatest, it was, the conditions were ideal. It was 
those cold, crisp November mornings, just kind of, you know, what you think about when you think about a rut hunt, those, those type of conditions other than the, the less than ideal wind. So, yeah, I was, I was excited to be there and excited to see how the morning was going to go for sure. Right. So you get in there, you're set up, the sun starts coming up. Uh, did you see movement right away? Did you rattle right off the bat? Um, what, uh, how did the morning kind of progress until, uh, the big boys showed up? Well, I can tell you it was, uh, it was over a lot sooner than, than expected. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm not sure the sun had even, had barely broken the horizon. And I looked over to my left and I saw movement. And when I first saw it, I just the way it was coming through the trees, I thought it was, and it looked really, really small. I thought it was a coyote or something. Yeah. And I, you know, tapped my, tapped my cameraman and said, there's something over there. And at the same time I was doing that, I was pulling up my binos. Well, as soon as I got them in my binos, I, I knew it was a shooter right away. And I just, you know, I said, shooter, shooter. And uh, he was probably. I don't know. It, like I said, it's really thick in that little spot. But he was probably 40 yards away when I first spotted him, 40, 45, something like that. And, and uh, you know, being a brand-new spot, you really had to pick and choose where you're going to shoot. You didn't have anything cleared out like we were talking about earlier. So I came to full jaw fairly early, probably when he was 30 yards. And uh, he just kept and he's walking right at our tree. I mean, directly at the base of our tree. There was a trail, you know, once it got light, I could see there's a trail that rubbed up against our tree, and that was the trail he was on. And uh, when he got to about six, seven yards, he finally stopped and turned broadside, and it was a, you know, a, a chip shot from that from that spot. But I, that, for a while, I didn't think I was going to get shot. I was full jaw for, he, he took a sweet time. He kind of zigzagged his way a little bit before he before he got on his beeline to our tree so i was full draw i think i had on the footage for about 55 seconds um gotcha. and like i said I, I didn't know what i was going to do once he passed our tree how we we're it was dead still i don't know how two guys were going to try to turn around and film him and and shoot him on the other side without getting busted so thankfully he, he turned broadside before that happened so after you shot him right he ran off did you think it was the big buck that you saw initially or did you know like, Hey, th- I'd never seen this buck before. So I thought it was when I got him in my dyno. Um, but after I came full draw and was looking at him through my peep, I knew it wasn't that deer. I knew it was a different deer at that point. So, but I had no idea which deer it was. Um, but I was fairly confident it was one I didn't know. Okay. Um, but I, I, again, I, he, he looks so similar and you just don't think about having a bunch of giant typical frame deer on one farm. So it, it's in the back of my mind, I'm like, could that be that deer? But uh, like I said, when I was full drawn, he was at seven yards. I, I knew it wasn't him. Right. And you, you laid him down, you walked up to him. Uh, I mean, you watched, you watched, did you watch him fall over or did he run over the hill? Yeah. We watched him fall over about 40 yards from the tree. Okay. So was this the biggest buck you've ever killed? Inches wise. Yeah. He was, he, um, was three inches bigger than my, my previous biggest inch wise. Okay. What was the, what did he end up scoring? He went 186 man there's a portion of me right now that wants to punch you in your face <laughs> like i'm extremely jealous but at the I same time it's like that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> but that was uh 
that's you know that's a that's a dream come true but that tells me that you've already shot another buck in the 180s which makes me yeah. hate you even a little bit more <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're good you're consistent but i hate you there's a lot of luck involved i'll be the first to admit that right no that's um, that's how that's how it goes but um yeah so you know when you walked up to him uh are you i mean when you when you ended up walking up to him what was kind of going through your your mind at that point so it was, it was pretty cool um so the way he fell of course I, I watched him fall and everything but the way he fell his rack landed behind the tree from me so i couldn't actually like study it from the tree and uh we were, we were gonna wait for another cameraman to come help film so we were gonna have two cameramen film their cameraman filming their recovery so we went back to the truck kind of loaded some of our stuff and hung out for an hour or so um so I, you know, I couldn't wait to get my hands on him, but I wanted it to to be the the real deal, and I was just so excited to see what deer it was. And uh, Zach and I, my cameraman that day, he was when we were talking, we just kept saying, "There's no way it can be that deer," and we just it just wasn't. You know, we just knew it wasn't. And I think more than anything, I was excited to see which deer it was. We we both knew he was a giant. Um, right. But there's there's nothing like that experience when you when you actually get there and and lift his rack up and, and just that's when you truly appreciate, you know, some of these animals and, and, and how big they are. Right. Well, that's awesome. Um, now that that's all on film. Where can people go and watch that, uh, watch that uh, episode? Yeah. So they can watch it on, on middle flight tone. And Mike and I actually do a, a, uh, every few days, a video blog throughout the season. So you can just see all of our hunts in general, but, uh, com. if you want to watch it on there. Um, we have the Chasing November series, which will be coming out later this summer, which is more, you know, the semi-live episodes that I was talking about earlier on the podcast, it's tough to include the whole story into, a, right. you know, within a few days of producing and, and into a 15-20 minute episode. The Chasing November series is more designed about telling the whole story throughout the season, you know. Right getting access to the new farm, how I started hunting that new farm, all that type of stuff would, would be, you know, more included in that and just more hunts that kind of put the puzzle together are included in that. So that'll be coming out this summer, but chasingnovember.com or um, Carbon TV has it. So there's okay. a few different places, Apple TV, Roku, all that. So is, uh, are you excited for this same farm this upcoming season? Any uh, anything that you saw from the stand? Well, other than the other big buck, that do you know if that buck got harvested at all? He did. He got he did. killed okay. during uh, shotgun season, I believe. Okay. Um, he got killed during shotgun season. Actually, that neighborhood had a ton of deer killed too. So um, both those farms are kind of be kind of starting fresh a little bit. Um, I don't know sheds. that I'll have, <clears throat> I haven't set on that farm. I don't know for sure if I'll be hunting it again this year, if I have access to it or not. It's still kind of up in the air. The, the landowner, that landowner actually hunts. Okay. Um, so he, he's got a couple farms, but, you know, seeing, seeing some of that stuff, maybe focusing more time on that. We'll, we'll kind of see how, <laughs> you think? how it goes. Oh man. Yeah. That I, sucks yeah, I because. I don't blame it at all, but it's, you know, it's part of the nature of, of what I do and 
right. um, I'm, I'm grateful to have gotten one opportunity to hunt it if, if it's my last one. Right, right, for sure. Well, Jared, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, come on the podcast and chat with me for a while. Yeah, it's been fun, Dan. And we're done. Another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Jared for coming on the show and uh, chatting with us for an hour. Thank you very much. Huge shout out, as always, to the listeners of the podcast. Without you, I am nothing. I appreciate you guys taking time to download and listen. Huge shout out to all of the partners of this podcast. Gearhead, Ozonics, Deer Lab, and Exodus, and Wasp and ripcord i think i already said that but um companies like exodus and wasp man if you're gonna go purchase something from their website use the code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers and uh you're gonna save i think exodus you're gonna save twenty dollars off of your purchase and with wasp you're saving twenty percent off every order so uh that's a good deal um keep listening because ozonics there's going to be some giveaways uh, coming up with Ozonics, and uh, actually there's one going on right now, so look out for the last podcast that we did. Um, I know there's going to be more giveaways this upcoming um, summer, so just pay attention for all that, and uh, again, thanks to all, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this into your head, thanks to all of the partners of this podcast. Go check out every one of their websites. Uh, Deer Lab, Exodus, Wasp, Ripcord, Ozonics, Gearhead, uh, and uh, yeah, if you haven't already, go to iTunes and leave a review of this podcast. I would really appreciate that. Also, follow me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. I do a lot on there, especially on Facebook. I ask random questions all the time, and I love your guys' feedback. The more, the merrier. So uh, do that, and guys, most importantly, um, if you haven't already signed up for the National Deer Alliance, go do it. They send emails. It keeps you up to date on just about everything that's going on that that you as hardcore hunters need to know about, whether it's rules, regulation, disease, um, positives and negatives things that are happening so go if you haven't already go sign up to be a member of the national deer alliance thank you very much and if you are going to be in a tree for some reason this weekend or this week or today or in the next five minutes wear your damn safety harness